RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Ali Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 2. Polly Nichols. See what a jolly bonnet I'm wearing. 31st August, 1888. Following the deaths of Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram, found a couple of hundred metres apart. Whitechapel, though horrified, soon settled down and life slowly returned to normal. The summer heat was dying off at this point to be replaced by rain and thunderstorms. But the pubs were busy, costermongers continued to loudly sell their wares, and the daily grind of trying to secure enough money to get through the day went on regardless. In the form of public enjoyment, entertainment came at a price in the East End so the music halls were mostly patronised by those from the west end of the city. However, come the end of August, with the investigation into Martha Tabron's recent murder in full flow, the area enjoyed something of a freebie, when the warehouse of Messrs Dibble and Co, engineers in Shadwell Drydock, caught a light and gutted the building. The conflagration extended to the vessel Canovia, which was in for repair at the time, causing even more of a spectacle. The fire was visible for miles, and seemed to set the sky ablaze. Another fire also started at night, but in the Pool of London. The East End could never resist a good fire, and hundreds gathered at a safe distance to watch it burn and crackle. One viewer, Emily Holland, a resident of Wilmot's lodging house at 18 Thrall Street, stayed for a while, but as the rain was coming down, she decided to return to her home. It was gone 2am, on Friday the 31st of August, 1888. As she passed across Whitechapel Road, she came across her friend and roommate Mary Ann Nichols on the corner. Mary Ann, or Polly as she was more commonly known, had spent much of the night in the frying pan pub on Brick Lane, and was three sheets to the wind at this point. Such was her drunkenness and uncertainty of her footing that she appeared to be holding on to the wall for support. Ellen tried to convince Polly to return to their lodging house but Polly had already been turned away from Wilmot's, and she didn't have the requisite 4D for a bed. She was, however, optimistic about her chances of raising the cash, as she'd recently acquired a new hat, which she thought would bring in some funds, telling the deputy keeper, See what a jolly new bonnet I'm wearing. She told Ellen, I've had my DOS money three times a day and spent it. It won't be long before I'm back. This conversation took place just yards from the spot where Emma Elizabeth Smith was killed four months earlier. Polly Nichols was born in 1845 in Dean Street, London, and had just celebrated her 43rd birthday a week earlier. Like many of the Whitechapel unfortunates, she had once had a more stable life, which had crumbled over the years. In January 1864, she had married a printer's machinist called William Nichols, with whom she would had five children. Come 1881, however, the marriage was over. Polly claimed it was because William was having an affair with a midwife, but the more common view certainly one made in the police reports, was that he could no longer tolerate her excessive drinking, and threw her out. For the first year following the breakup, 
William had paid Polly an allowance, as was customary at the time, but then he discovered she was working as a casual prostitute and halted all payments. It's unclear how starving her of funds was supposed to turn her away from that life, and it merely resulted in further hardships. Soon she became a penniless, homeless and hopeless alcoholic, with nothing to sell but herself. She spent the next few years drifting from workhouse to workhouse, finding herself in Lambeth after a spell of sleeping rough in Trafalgar Square. Her look briefly changed, though, when she entered domestic service for Samuel and Sarah Cowdery, a family in Wandsworth. Things seem to be on the up, and she appears content in this letter to her father, which was dated the 17th of April, 1888. I'd just write to say you would be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is a grand place inside, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I've not much to do. I hope you're all right and the boy has work. So, goodbye for the present. From yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. Yes, the Cowdreys was a teetotal house, while Polly was anything but, so the arrangement was inevitably doomed. On the 12th of July, 1888, she left, stealing clothes to the value of £3 and 10 shillings as she went. Ellen returned to her dust that night in Thrall Street, while Polly looked for the 4D to join her. They were never to meet again. Behind Whitechapel Station lay Bucks Row, now named Derwood Street, a narrow collection of cottages on the south side of the street, next to a board school with warehouses on the other side. It runs parallel to Whitechapel Road, and was used as a cut-through for those looking for a direct route to Hanbury Street and Spitalfields Market. Derwood Street is currently closed to traffic due to crossrail building works, and its most infamous spot now sits behind a screened-off building site. In 1888, Bucks Row was a dark and welcoming thoroughfare. In Charles Booth's famed poverty map of the time, it was coloured light blue for poor, 18 to 21 shillings a week from moderate family. In the early hours of the 31st of August, it was certainly quiet, but come the morning, it was positively vibrant. 3.40am, a carman known as Charles Lechmere, also known as Charles Cross, aliases were quite common at the time, came down Bucks Row from the direction of Brady Street. It was not unusual at this time to find people in the streets heading to work, given that the majority of employment was found either at the market or at the docks. As he headed west towards the board school, he noticed what he thought was a roll of tarpaulin in the street. On closer inspection, it appeared to be a woman, lying near the gates of a stable yard. Such was the gloom and rain that he first thought she was drunk. He crouched over her to examine her further. At that point, though there is a suspicion that Lechmere was with the body slightly longer than that, Robert Paul, another carman, passed the same way, on his way to Spitalfields Market. Lechmere touched his shoulder as he passed, and asked him to look at the woman. He did so, and found her hands and face to be cold. Both men noticed that her skirt had been hiked up, and given the times, preserved their dignity by putting it down again to cover her legs. Lechmere was convinced she was dead, but Paul thought he detected a faint heartbeat. Already late for work, they decided to leave her be and notify a policeman as they went on their way. As they headed west, they encountered PC Jonas Misen on Baker's Row, a couple of hundred yards past the board school, and told him about the woman in Buck's Row. The two carters then parted company, with Paul taking Old Montague Street and Lechmere, Hanbury Street. By the time Misen had reached the body, PC John Neal, who must have missed Lechmere and Paul by a minute as he approached Buck's Row from the Baker's Row end, 
was in situ. Neil had one advantage over the two men, his lamp, and he could see what they could not. The woman had a deep wound to her throat, and blood was still coming from the gash. They were joined by a third policeman, John Thane, who had been patrolling Brady Street to the east. Neil then sent Thane to wake up Dr Llewellyn, the local surgeon, and Misen to summon an ambulance, while he stayed with the body. Directly opposite the body stood Essex Wharf, a warehouse. Neil rang the bell and asked if anyone had heard any disturbance in the night. They had not. Nor had some other workers in nearby Winthrop Street. The woman appeared to die in silence. Dr Llewellyn lived just around the corner at 152 Whitechapel Road. He performed a brief examination and pronounced life extinct before ordering her body be removed to the old Montague Street workhouse infirmary mortuary. It was only there later that he realised the extent of the woman's injuries. No one at the scene had noticed her abdomen. It had been slashed ferociously. It had been reported in the Times. On reaching Bucks Row, he found deceased lying flat on her back on the pathway, her legs being extended. Deceased was quite dead, and she had severe injuries to her throat. Her hands and wrists were cold, but the lower extremities were quite warm. Witness examined her chest and felt the heart. It was dark at the time. He should say the deceased had not been dead more than half an hour. He was certain the injuries to the neck were not self-inflicted. There was very little blood around the neck, and there were no marks of any struggle or of blood, as though the body had been dragged. Witness gave the police directions to take the body to the mortuary, where he would make another examination. About an hour afterwards, he was sent for by the inspector to see the other injuries he discovered on the body. Witness went, and saw that the abdomen was cut very extensively. That morning he made a post-mortem examination of the body. It was that of a female of about 40 or 45 years. Five of the teeth were missing, and there was a slight laceration of the tongue. There was a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw on the right side of the face that might have been caused by a blow from a fist or pressure from a thumb. There was a circular bruise on the left side of the face which also might have been inflicted by the pressure of the fingers. On the left side of the neck, about one inch below the jaw, there was an incision of about four inches in length, and ran from a point immediately below the ear. On the same side, but an inch below, and commencing about one inch in front of it, was a circular incision, which terminated at a point about three inches below the right jaw. That incision completely severed all the tissues down to the vertebra. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about eight inches in length. The cuts must have been caused by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp, and used with great violence. No blood was found on the breast, either of the body or the clothes. There were no injuries about the body until just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound running in a jagged manner. The wound was a very deep one, and the tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. There were also three or four similar cuts running downwards on the right side, all of which had been caused by a knife which had been used violently and downwards. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All the injuries had been caused by the same instrument. This was the extent of the detective work in this case. Due to a lack of forensics and fingerprinting, the only real way the murder could be caught would be by the police catching him with the body. Some believe that Robert Paul did just that, and that it was Lechmere who was the Ripper, but that seems unlikely. While the scene of a crime today would be roped off and studied minutely with a fingertip search, 
The Metropolitan Police at the time had the main priority of tidying up the area and shooing people away before knocking on doors in search of witnesses. Thus the blood was just washed away with any evidence that went with it. At this point, there was still some doubt as to the woman's identity. Some of her clothes bore a stamp from the Lambeth workhouse, and an inmate there, Mary Ann Monk, identified her as Mary Ann Polly Nichols. Her widower, William, confirmed this later. She was to be buried at the City of London Cemetery in Forest Gate, grave number 210752. The Daily News reported that the case would be handled by Inspector Frederick Abiline of Scotland Yard. Looking more like a clerk than an inspector, Abiline was intimately acquainted with both the area and the criminal fraternity, so was ideal for the job. No known photographs of him exist, though it's doubtful that he looked like Johnny Depp or Michael Caine, who have played him in various Ripper films. Immediate suspicion fell upon the various street gangs who would extort the local prostitutes. This seems to be the case in the death of Emma Elizabeth Smith. But with the very recent violent death of Martha Tabram, it seemed clear that this was likely to be the work of a single killer. In the days following the Nichols murder, it was reported that the police had viewed them as linked murders by the same hand. Polly's death would prove to be the only one without a witness having seen a man with the victim beforehand. No one in the nearby houses on Bucks Row, including the woman whose window Polly's practically fell under, heard a thing. The killer seemed to have dodged between three different police beats and vanished into the night. Little wonder then that the East End was first shocked and then horrified that such a monster was at large. If he was Tabram's killer too, there had been an escalation in his work. While Martha was stabbed repeatedly, Polly had had her throat cut and been mutilated. Was this the act of a man getting used to his work? Would there be a more gruesome evisceration ahead? Whitechapel had just one week to find out. <laughs> 